Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever and whenever you are listening to this episode of The Global in the Granite State, a podcast of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. We are so glad you have taken the time to tune into this great discussion on preventing, responding to, and reconciling from a genocide. We know this is a tough conversation to have, as there are many examples of these terrible atrocities throughout history, as well as several ongoing today. I can assure you that we avoid any graphic discussions and are looking to inform on the important steps communities can take. We do, however, want to make the community aware that strong language can be found in this conversation, so listener discretion is advised. For those who do not yet know, my name is Tim Horgan, and I am the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, and your host for this podcast. Here is where I remind you that the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire is a community-supported organization, which means these conversations can only continue through the generous support of the people who find value in our work. So, if you have enjoyed any of our past programs or want to hear more in the future, please do consider a donation today. You can find a link in the show's description. Thank you to all of our wonderful supporters and members for your commitment to global peace and understanding. A particular thank you to our sponsor, McLean Middleton. McLean Middleton is one of New England's premier full-service law firms with over 100 attorneys throughout offices in New Hampshire and Massachusetts. McLean Middleton's attorneys have been providing trusted legal services to businesses throughout the region for over 100 years. Learn more at McLean.com. Now on to the conversation at hand. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez put it, hatred is a danger to everyone. And so fighting it must be a job for everyone. Here, we begin to understand the importance of an engaged citizenry to tackle large global issues like genocide and rising anti-Semitism. If you are listening to this podcast in March, April, or May of 2023, I hope you will join us for our upcoming three-part T. William and Patricia Ayers Global Tipping Point series, but if you missed any of them, don't worry. You can find the recordings on our website at wacnh.org. So, if fighting hatred is everyone's job, it is equally important that people understand what is going on around the world and what can be done about it. I was honored to speak with Mike Price, a former Marine who served during the Bosnian War, taught at the Naval War College and Harvard, as well as has written and spoken extensively on the topic of genocide, the challenges around it, and why this all matters. But let us be clear right up front, none of this is easy. This is a difficult part of the world affairs. There is no clear, obvious solution. It is a clearly an ugly and horrible problem. And it still exists, and that it exists is a measure of its complexity. And that the people like yourself and other people that are in this conversation and want to remain part of this conversation, it's a difficult one. And I really, really respect your energy and your moral authority, as well as your ability to press on, because this is difficult. Okay, 
With that bit of understanding that we do not have the golden key to unlock a world of peace and harmony, I do also want to be clear that there are things that can be done, both large and small, that will hopefully help to prevent, react to, and rectify these atrocities. It all starts with awareness and understanding of the challenge. We are not a prescriptive organization that is going to tell you how to feel, react, or engage with these issues, but we hope to provide you with key insights that will lead to deeper conversations and more opportunities for organic solutions to rise to the top. So, let us frame the conversation a bit. Today, March of 2023, there are at least 10 current genocides going on around the world, as identified by the international nonprofit Genocide Watch. According to the Anti-Defamation League, there has been a five-year upswing in hateful incidents directed at Jewish people in the United States. And they have found that 26% of people surveyed globally believe at least six of 11 anti-Jewish statements were mostly true. As hate speech rises in the public sphere, it creates the opportunity for it to grow and flourish in a society. Violence comes next as people are looked upon as others or less than. We see this process play out in genocides across the world, to the point where the 10 stages of genocide, as outlined by Dr. Gregory Stanton, you can find a link to this in our website, includes these processes in the research. So when we talk about genocide, what are we actually talking about? Whenever you think about somebody killing somebody at mass, you think about the guy in, in Vegas a couple of years back shooting all kinds, hundreds of people. You think that's what a genocide is, and that's really not. That's an atrocity, but it's not a genocide. Genocide is actually, it's a very controlled and measured will of the state or will of whatever power it is. Typically, without getting much into the definition of a genocide and, and my own personal opinion of what's happened to the definition of a genocide, if we use it in a broad parameter, typically a genocide is an act of the state's will against its population within the territory in which it is sovereign, that it owns, that it can control. And, you know, if the state's going to be the owner of the most ultimate authority, which is the use of force, then they can use that force against their own people and they can do it in whatever way most satisfies, directly satisfies the leader's will. The intent to destroy a national, ethnic, racial or religious group, in whole or in part, is a main component of the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, as first ratified in 1948. While there are other crimes against humanity that are outlined by various conventions, genocide is unique in that a specific intent to destroy these communities must be present. This leads to a challenge in responding to genocides that makes things more difficult. As a part of the convention, the international community has a responsibility to respond when a genocide is identified. This leads many governments and institutions to shy away from naming atrocities as a genocide. They have the easy excuse of not being able to prove intent, which means no intervention. Hopefully, this provides a good framework for understanding. However, what it does not help illuminate, at least for myself, is the question of how people can become so evil that they are willing to perpetrate such horrible acts on other humans. These must be irrational actors making horrible decisions. How else can we make sense of these events? It's impossible to say that it makes sense, except in the sense that it makes sense from their perspective. We don't understand it, but 
one day in 1936, Stalin and uh, his number two guy signed off on the death warrants of 3,500 people that morning and went to a movie that evening. And so it all makes perfect sense to them. You just have to understand the reason for it predominantly is power. Sometimes it's an ethnic cleansing, we would say, but mostly it's about power. I would say envy is the number one. And the second is just plain power. Envy is what the Jewish people have been enduring ever since they managed to figure out a way to survive being different from everybody else. And they did that by accumulating wealth, which is accumulating political power as well. Yes, it is as simple as that. The people in power decide that there is a threat from a group of others, and they work to dehumanize, other, classify, and eliminate them. It is taking care of a problem, so they do not have to worry about it anymore. The Nazi party believed that the Jewish people had an impulse to dominate the world, and that this would lead to the end of the Aryan race. So rationally, to them, not me, the elimination of the Jewish people was necessary to ensure their own survival. This also leads to the next point. The people who perpetrate the violence find ways to identify and exclude the group or groups of people who they want to eliminate. So what are some of these identifiers? Well, physical characteristics have always been a part of it. And it can be any way from the way people dress, the color of their skin, to the way they talk. It can be anything, language, whatever. So there's physical characteristics, then there's social characteristics, like how much money do you have? How much political power do you have? Do you have a lot of money, but you don't have a lot of power? You have a lot of power, but you don't have much money? There's a relationship forming there, and it may not be symbiotic. It will in all likelihood be parasitic, deeply parasitic to the one with money without power. So there's all kinds of elements with it. Finding ways to separate yourself from someone else is a long human trait, but we've been associating with this sort of aspect for a very long time. And it's usually that's how it starts, is you find ways different. Cockroaches in, the, in Rwanda, Jews in Germany, that didn't stay just with Jews. It was everybody that was opposed to, to the Nazis. And perhaps what's happening in Russia. One thing we have not talked about here is that there must be buy-in from the community in power for this to progress to the level of genocide. Or at the very least, a pervasive sense of fear of speaking out within the community. Many people remained silent as the Holocaust progressed. Many everyday people joined in the killing of Tutsis in Rwanda. In addition, the international community remains silent or ineffective. As Ambassador Samantha Power stated, quote, No U.S. president has ever made genocide prevention a priority, and no U.S. president has ever suffered politically for his indifference. In addition, the United Nations has not been effective in preventing genocides either. Just look at the response to what is happening to the Uyghurs in China. It took years of research and information gathering, as well as an outgoing UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, and they still would not label it a genocide, only stating that there are possible crimes against humanity. So, what is the number one thing that Mike believes is the best prevention to a genocide? We have to have transparency within the government. Most dictatorships that spark things like genocides, they don't tolerate much transparency. And that's what I think, if there's anything in the Lantos Foundation does a good job of this, is advocating for transparency. That, I think, is the best disinfectant. I don't think there's another. I really don't. You can see this play out in the genocide against the Rohingya in Myanmar, a historically secretive government, or again with China and the Uyghurs or against the Kurds across multiple countries in the Middle East. 
None of these governments are paragons of transparency. Of these specific countries, only China ranks in the top 100 of Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions list. Coming in at number 65. By keeping their actions under wraps for longer, they are able to progress in the 10 stages of genocide faster, before receiving any true pushback. So, when the world finally opens its eyes to a genocide and decides to act, who is best positioned to respond? You'd like to think the UN would be a key player because they've stuck a lot of their forces in places to do something like that. But I don't know that the UN is actually much of a paragon of bureaucratic excellence when it comes to this kind of thing. As a matter of fact, one of the more interesting things I did was I talked to a lot of commanders, UN commanders, at several of the conferences that I went to. And it was fascinating. These were general officers, typically in in Northern Europe, Scandinavian countries, typically, that were running these things. And they were very open with me about the bureaucratic chaos that comes from that. So I don't think we can expect much of the UN in the future to do anything about anything. And so the other players, I think, it really is going to come down to whatever the American military is going to be able to put somewhere to stop anything. And I think those days are diminishing as time goes on, because I think Americans have had enough of being the world's policemen. I think it's the retrenchment is coming, and I think it's imminent, and I think that's going to be very dangerous. Okay, if we cannot count on the international system or governments to come in and stop a genocide, who can we rely upon? It would seem that we must rely on the collective action of nonprofits, communities, and individuals. By bringing awareness and pushing for action, these organizations and people can make a difference. Without a clear community of concerned people who demand actions be taken, we cannot expect governments engaged in genocidal actions to stop. Here we can rely on organizations like the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire and the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. And I say the Lantos ladies with absolute respect, admiration, And flat out, I don't know another word to say for it. These people do amazing work. The opportunity to work with them is probably the best thing that I got out of this whole experience of working at Harvard, the War College, and everybody else that was associated with this. These were the best people that I worked with. I think they have the best connection. I think they have the strongest commitment. And I think they also have the most honorable approach to doing something about it. And that is they take it personally and they do something about it. And as a guy who was a part of this industry for a while, if I can be so bold as to call it that, but had to bow out because it's just, it was uh, more than I could emotionally take. I really respect what the Lantos Foundation has done from Tom all the way down to everyone there now. They do great work and I really appreciate it. Organizations like these can bring the needed awareness to the warning signs as we will be doing over the next couple of months with our T. William and Patricia Ayers Global Tipping Point series on confronting genocide and anti-Semitism. Partnering with the Lantos Foundation and the New Hampshire chapter of the Fulbright Association, we will bring together our global communities to hear about prevention, intervention, and reconciliation. We hope you can join us or watch the recordings. More information at wacnh.org. Speaking of responses... What does it look like for an outside force to come in and help bring an end to the killing? Back in the early aughts, there was a part of military planning processes in the United States, which is called stability planning. And it was the opposite of going into Iraq, basically knocking the hell out of everything and then having to rebuild it. We came in with stability operations. We could find a way to stabilize it without destroying it. And there was another part of stability operations called the responsibility to protect. 
Now I'm using R2P, it's called, Responsibility to Protect. It's a doctrine you don't hear much about, but it was very, very loud and very resonant in the early aughts and in the middle of aughts, all, all the way up until 2010, actually, just about the time when Obama's first term ended. That's when it began to fall out of favor. And the reason for that is, is that it's really hard to do because when I went to Bosnia, I was one of those guys that went in. We were doing R2P before we developed the acronym. I was one of the guys that went in to Kosovo in 99. And I remember talking to my Marines and the other people I was going in with that it was worth losing the leg to help people. It never mattered to any of us and never will. That's worth catching a bullet because we're Americans. Well, that's a tough speech to give anymore. And it was a tough speech to give then because we all knew it wasn't really true. Would you give your leg to help a Bosnian girl? You're going to lose your leg for that? And you're not going to do it in operating. You're going to do it in a really ugly spot. You may damn well get killed. So it's a hard sell. In addition, the responsibility to protect means that if the sides who has been attacked initially, decides now is a good time to get some revenge, it can be really difficult to flip a switch and start protecting the other side. It makes it very challenging to know where each side stands and what types of responses are necessary. So what does operating in a space like this mean for the peacekeepers? As we should not forget that these are people too. And you're showing up with a rifle pointing at the people that slaughtered the people. That's a step above that. And it really puts you in a special place that you've actually done something. You've done something with your life no one else has ever had. So I think you can be horrifically scared. And I do mean horrifically because you could die horribly. And amazingly pleased that you pulled it off. It's hellacious going in. But if you actually pull it off and you meet some of the people that survived it because you showed up, that's a pretty good thing. And it's unparalleled. So you understand that when you raise your hand and become a part of it. As an officer in that kind of world, it's up to you to make it rational to your men. And that's not an easy thing to do because you don't want to lie. You can't lie to your people. And a lot of times they're smart as you or smarter. So they've read the same material and you're not going to come up with something new. The hardest part of it is, is that this is one of the few occasions in the military where you have the opportunity to really help somebody. No shit, you do it. All right. We now know what the lead-in to a genocide is. We also know that it is not an easy task to intervene in order to stop a genocide. And that there is not a lot of international support for intervention. Now seems like a good time to talk about areas of concern as we look ahead to the next potential genocide. What I see on the horizon coming straight at us is South Africa in a very big way. I don't know who's been studying what's going on in South Africa. I've got friends there. I've done several safaris there. I've done conferences there. I will not go back to South Africa. It is going to explode. And you want to talk about bringing forth all of the troubles that we have in this country? You want to put them in a microcosm of South Africa. South African history is very similar to American history. They were the same People that came over as pioneers, some decided to go south and take a much longer trip to at the bottom of Africa, and others decided to take their chances along the North Atlantic and make it to America, maybe. Those are the same people, and they have very similar problems coming at them. South Africa is going to be the, the real barometer of whether or not an R2P-like 
reinvention for our government is going to happen. We'll be able to decide this very soon, within three to five years is my guess. Another area of concern for Mike is... You are seeing it already is in Mexico with the cartels. There's a significant amount of genocide, if you want to interpret that. And, and I also think that the term genocide, it used to have a significant moral credit to it, or if we could think of it as sort of a credit score. But the more it's been applied to intersectionality logic, the more that credit score has been diminished by its overuse being overapplied. But I think what's going on in the cartels is most definitely a genocidal approach, not only because of what the Mexican, the corrupt Mexican government is doing with the cartels to encourage that, but also picking sides. But there's also a Chinese element to that with the fentanyl smuggling. So there's all kinds of things that spin around in that. Let's imagine a genocide comes to an end and the community is left to reconcile. We have seen a number of attempts at bringing justice for the victims, but truth and reconciliation commissions have a mixed track record. When you agree to immunity to get the truth, that leads to resentments against the perpetrators. When you don't give immunity, it is much harder to get to the truth. Conducting fair trials are challenging when tensions continue to run high and impartiality is hard to come by. However, there have been some great examples of successes, mainly run through non-governmental organizations. We will explore these ideas at our May 2nd event, which you can watch online or join us in person. One final thing to note is that this is nothing new. There's a long history of people looking to wipe the quote-unquote other off the map. Whether we are talking about the Armenian genocide, Western countries erasing native cultures in the New World, or countless other examples, this is not an issue that will be resolved anytime soon. This is nothing new. This is very, very common to have that sort of hatred labeling as the your opposition as others worthy of nothing more than a bullet and so that kind of fury goes way back and how do you moderate and control that i have no idea but i can tell you that the moment that you move down the trail of, of painting someone a different color a different species you're moving in that direction while this is not an uplifting tale it is important to remember that awareness is key in building out responses and creating the conditions necessary to move closer to a world free of genocide. As with all of our difficult conversations throughout a variety of global issues, global understanding is the first step to tackling these challenges. And the final thing is, is that we all press on like you're doing. Keep doing something about it and keep your eyes and ears open because you'll see it. It's coming. It bounces around all the time. Thank you to everyone who has joined us for this important discussion. We appreciate your dedication to engaging in these conversations and utilizing this platform to gain insights into an under-discussed issue. We hope you all join us for the upcoming series on confronting genocide and rising anti-Semitism over the next couple of months. We look at this as the start of a conversation and hope you will continue to engage in these efforts and support the great organizations doing wonderful work in this space. This has been The Global in the Granite State, a production of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. 
W-A-C-N-H, is a community-supported nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to building a better world through understanding. Join us in person or online for global conversations and to take your seat at the international table. Even when you think your voice doesn't carry much weight, you can still affect change in the ever-shrinking world. Thank you to Mike Price for providing his insights for today's episode. As always, your host, producer, director, audio technician, editor, and everything else you can think of for this podcast is Tim Horgan. Our theme music, as always, is Admin by A.A. Alto, and our interlude music is Genocide by Yutabi Hali. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 